In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 80. Each psalm has a title. The title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician, Sit to the Lilies, A Testimony of Asaph, a song. To the chief musician, what does it mean? Some suppose to be the leader of the choir or the leader of the musicians during David's time, like Heman the singer or Asaph. But some others says the chief musician is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Then it is written, Set to the lilies. Actually, this title, we can find it in Psalm 45, Psalm 60, Psalm 69, Set to the Lilies. The phrase may refer to the general beauty of the composition, so it's a beautiful psalm, or to the tune, or to a six-stringed instrument that has a resemblance to a lily, or that was shaped like a lily. Then a testimony of Asaph may have been used here with reference to the contents of the psalm as a public testimony in regard of God's dealing with his people. So Asaph is recording to us a testimony how God deals with his people. Asaph wrote 11 psalms, this one of the psalms written by Asaph. But as with several of Asaph's psalms, people attribute this psalm to a later Asaph, not to Asaph that lived during the time of King David and King Solomon. But the church believes the author is Asaph of David's time. But if the psalm speaks about the future, because we read in Second Chronicles that Asaph, in his musical composition, was prophetic. So Asaph is not only a singer, not only a musician, but also a prophet. So we can expect Asaph in his psalms to speak about the future. And the historical circumstances that inspired the prayer of this psalm are not certain, we don't know what historical circumstances. But apparently this psalm is very similar to Psalm 79. So it is written on the same occasion of Psalm 79. Psalm 79 is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And as I told you, Asaph did not live during that time because Asaph lived during the David and, and Solomon. But in prophetic way, he saw that destruction is happening. That's why he was asking for God's mercy. The destruction happened three times. Number one, in the Babylonian captivity. Number two, during the time of Maccabees by Antiochus Epiphanius. And number three, after the Lord Jesus Christ, 70 AD, that the final destruction of the temple by Titus, the Roman commander. So this psalm and the previous Psalm 79 are speaking about 
either the three times or in general the affliction and the persecution of the church. This psalm is a plea for the restoration of Israel from this persecution. It is a lament in which the worshiping community calls upon God to rescue them from trouble. Psalm 80 is a cry out to the Lord for help in the face of the Lord's anger. So when God is disappointed with his people. And by the way, as we're going to see, some verses from this psalm were chanting in the divine liturgy, the Watus Aspasmus, O Lord God of hosts, return and visit this vine which you planted. This Watus Aspasmus is taken from Psalm 80, as we explain. And regardless of the exact experience that gave rise to this psalm, the psalm is appropriate for the people of God who suffer at any time and may be applied to any affliction of the people of God in any age or any period of time. This psalm actually can be divided into three parts. Each part concludes by restore us, O God, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You find this verse is repeated three times, verse 3, verse 7, and at the end of the psalm, verse 19. The first part from verse 1 to 3 actually addressed to God as a shepherd. The second part that ended by verse 7 is a prayer founded on the troubles of his people. And the third part, that Psalm 19, founded on the former dealings of God with his people. So, first part, God as our shepherd, concluded by restore us, O God. Second part, the trouble of his people, concluded by restore us, O God. Third part, the former dealing of God with his people, concluded by Again, restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. According to St. Augustine, this psalm is about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his vineyard, the church. And by the way, in the Kehkohos, we quote some verses from this psalm, because according to St. Augustine, it's about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his vineyard, the church. It relates to the head and the body, the king and the people, the shepherd and his flock, the vine and the branches. This psalm is 19 verse, from verse 1 to 3, prayer to Israel's shepherd for restoration. 4 to 7, lamentation over God's people affliction. 8 to 16, Israel compared to a vineyard. That's a very beautiful part. And the last three verses, 17 to 19, a prayer for its restoration. So let's start from verse 1. As I told you, the first prayer, God as a shepherd. So Asaph is saying, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Asaph here, 
in the name of the church, please to God by prayer with reference to the present afflicted state of Israel. They are under affliction, under captivity. He entreats God's favor for them and addresses God as the shepherd of Israel, a name that is full of tenderness. And this name denotes the role of God as caregiver and protector, whom he had called his people and the sheep of his pasture. As we read in Psalm 79, the previous Psalm, verse 13, God called us his people and the sheep of his pasture. Israel was under his guidance and care, as the sheep under the care of a shepherd. And the title Shepherd of Israel actually comes from the metaphor that Israel is the flock of God and God is our shepherd. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And also there are many references in the scripture to God shepherding his people. Even in the New Covenant, John 10, I am the good shepherd. So the title speaks of the intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And this title of a shepherd belonged also to the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who was sent to the lost sheep of Israel and appointed by his father as shepherd over the lost sheep of Israel. This psalm starts by give ear, O shepherd of Israel, give ear. Mean incline your ear, as if the ear of God was turned away or as if God is inattentive to what was occurring. This is definitely the perception of the people, not who God is. But God who humbled himself to be a shepherd to his people will never turn a deaf ear to their complaints. God even hears our groaning. But that's our perception when we go through difficult time usually we perceive as as if we are forgotten by God. Then he called him who lead Joseph like a flock. Joseph here seems to represent the whole people of Israel. Why Joseph? Because he was so well known and important to their history. Joseph is the one who went to Egypt and brought Israel to Egypt. And as we're going to read in verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. That's why he called him, you who led Joseph like a flock. Led him to Egypt and then the rest of Israelites, God took them with Joseph or the children of Joseph back to the promised land. Then he, he told him, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. If you remember the Ark of Covenant, on the cover of the Ark of Covenant, two angels, two cherubim. And God used to appear or to speak to Aaron or Moses from between the cherubim. And this cover is called the mercy seat, the throne of God, the mercy seat. So the mercy seat was positioned above the Ark of Covenant and was guarded by two cherubim. So you who sits or dwell between the cherubim, it is the Lord's special presence 
God's presence is revealed upon the mercy seat between the cherubim. And it is very comfortable in prayer when actually you pray and think about God. He is sitting on the throne of mercy and grace. We are now in the era of mercy and grace. But in the second coming, he will be seated on the throne of judgment. But when you say, you who dwell between the cherubim, he is sitting on the mercy seat in the throne of mercy and grace. Asaph asked that God of this majesty and glory would shine forth on behalf of his people. Oh, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. He's asking God to give them such evidence of his presence now. We know that you are dwelling among us, but we are blind. We cannot see you. Shine forth that we can see you, that we can feel your presence among us as our forefathers saw you and heard you between the cherubim in the first tabernacle. And when God does shine forth, Darkness and gloom vanish, and God is magnified. So what the psalmist desires from God is that he would give ear to the cry of their miseries, give ear to their prayer, that he would shine forth, both in his own glory and also in favor and kindness to his people. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Again, if you remember, this was one of the verses that we pray in the Kehkhus. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Again, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh represented the whole. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. And he said, O you who led Joseph. Some think they seem to have been particularly mentioned here because Joseph, their father, had been referred to in the verse 1. And Benjamin, you know he is the brother of Joseph from the same mother, from Rachel. So Benjamin is mentioned here because when the 12 tribes actually they were marching in the wilderness of Sinai. The tribe of Levi in the middle, and they were carrying the tabernacle of meeting. And Joseph has two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So there are actually 13 tribes, the Levi in the middle, and then three like a cross on each side. Behind, if that is the Ark of Covenant and the Tabernacle of Meeting, and they are marching this way. So there are three tribes in the front, three tribes in the back, three tribes on the north, and three tribes on the west. Who are the three tribes in the back, behind the Ark of Covenant, behind the Tabernacle? Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. So, Benjamin is mentioned here because in marching through the wilderness, these three tribes were together because they were descendants of the same mother, Rachel. Also, it is not clear from the psalm itself any particular reason why the prayer is offered that God would manifest 
himself, especially before these three tribes. But some scholars said these three tribes, because they were marching immediately behind the Kohathites, these are the children, Kohat, the children of Levi, who were carrying the tabernacle of meeting. So they are behind Kohathites. These carried the ark on their shoulder in journeying. And they are just behind them. So when God shines, who can see them? Who can see God? The three tribes who are marching behind the ark. And the ark is called the Lord's strength. The ark of his strength. As we read in Psalm 78:61. So since the ark is before them, when God actually arose to scatter their enemies, they will be the first people to see the shining forth of God. And as God did it before, he can do it again. So Asaph is asking God that as he did in the past and went before those tribes, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, he can do it again. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength. Mean, put in action your mind, which seems to be hidden or inactive. That's our perception. So Asaph is asking God to use his strength and come for salvation to his people and be to them a powerful and a present help. He is asking that God do this before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh in the sight of all the tribes of Israel. Let them see it to their satisfaction. St. Augustine presents to us a symbolic interpretation why Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Beautiful. He said Ephraim means fruitful. Benjamin, the son of the right hand. Manasseh, the one who is forgetful. So, he is asking God to appear before Israel who was fruitful. They were few people, but in the promised land, they became fruitful. And also they are the children of his right hand. God said, Israel, my firstborn son. But now they forgot God. So fruitful, children of his right hand, but they forgot God. But when God actually visits them, they will no longer forget God. And when they no longer forget God, God is dwelling in their mind. So to save them. That's what he said. As Ephraim means fruitful, Benjamin means son of the right hand, and Manasseh means he who is forgetful, Asaph asks God, therefore, to appear before him who is fruitful, the son of the right hand, and the one who is forgetful. So that he no longer forgets. When God appears, no longer forgets. But you, God, would dwell in his mind to save him. St. Jerome also has a comment about Manasseh. And he said Manasseh means forgetting. The son who took his inheritance, wasted it, and forgot what is mine, like the prodigal son. But now he remembers God. He remembers me. I call him Manasseh from forgetting. But he did not forget to return his father. So the prodigal son 
return it back to his father. He did not forget to return it back to his father. So when God appears and manifests his power to those who are prodigal, to those who lost their way, they will return and will never forget God again. So it is as though the tribe of Manasseh refers to someone who returned to his father like the prodigal son after forgetting him for so long. But he remembered him now and would never again forget him. This actually about the Gentiles. The Gentiles forgot God. But in the new covenant, they came to God and never forget him. The son who returns to his father enjoys the portion of Manas. Verse 3, which was repeated three times, verses 3, 7, and 19. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Restore us, O God. This begins a refrain that's repeated three times in this psalm. Cause your face to shine. This goes back to the blessing the priest in the old covenant were commanded to proclaim it to the people of Israel. May the Lord shine with his face upon you. You can read this benediction in book of Numbers chapter 6 from verse 24 to 26. So, shining has the idea of God's presence, pleasure, favor. Also, it expressed the trust and dependence upon God. Confidence that his favor shown by his shining face was all that was needed for Israel restoration and blessing. They told him, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. All what we need that you shine with your face upon us. So there is a trust, confidence. If God shines with his face, that's all what we need and we shall be saved, will be restored. So God's faith, God's face seemed to be turned away as if God turned his face away. And they desperately needed him to turn his face back to them, smile on them favorably, and rescue them, restore us from the destruction that's about to take place. Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? When God hides his face, we became greatly disturbed. And as St. Augustine says, we become sick. When his response to our prayer is delayed, we sometimes assume that God is rejecting us. And we wonder, how long? For how long you will forget about me? Here we see Asaph's heart poured out in sorrow before God. It is a terrible thing to feel that God is angry and he is again is the prayer of his people. The sorrow is deeper when it is recognized that it is God of heavenly armies, the God of hosts, who in some way actually set himself against his people. He is the Lord God of hosts. We know that you can actually rescue us. You are the Lord God of hosts. But because you are angry, that's why you leave us to destruction and devastation. 
So there is a special significance in the repeated appeals to God. Like in verse 4, 14, 19, and we refer to God as Lord God of hosts. Lord God of hosts denote his universal sovereignty. Therefore, he is able to help Israel. He is the Lord of hosts, able to help Israel in their humiliation. And also, Asaph is recalling the day when God went forth with Israel armies to victory. And actually, he employed all the hosts in order to support Israel. And Israel is us, his people. How long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? What does it mean against the prayer of your people? It means in spite of prayer. We are praying, praying, but you are not listening. The Lord's wrath from verse 4 to 7 is described in three ways. The first way, God's anger endures in spite of the prayer of the people. So people are praying, but God is not listening. Not only delayed to answer them, but he was displeased at them. And we should know, when God delays his answer, he does it in love to discipline us so we can return back to him. If God be really angry at the prayer of his people, we may be sure it is because they ask wrongly or inappropriately. Like James told us in his letter, chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you don't receive because you ask inappropriately. Or maybe it is just their perception, their view, that God is angry with their prayer. And in reality, God is not angry. God is waiting for the right time, the proper time, the fullness of time to respond to them. That is the first way. I told you God's wrath is expressed in three ways. Number one, does it answer or delay the answer? Displeased with the people. Second, we read it in verse 5. You have fed them with bread of tears. Bread of tears, they are eating the bread, but they are crying. And because they are crying and giving them tears to drink in great measure. So they are weeping as if they are drinking their tears while they are eating their bread. So the second way of expressing God's wrath, the people have been fed with the bread of tears. The bread of blessing now is replaced with painful situation of the enemy nation attacking Israel. The temple where one might experience the shining of God's face. And the temple actually in the holy contained a special bread called the showbread. Showbread means the bread of the face. And instead of that bread, because the temple is destroyed, however the people now is fed with bread of tears. They have no peace, no comfort, nothing at all. Only continual sorrow. So Asaph used the metaphor of drinking tears to express the great sorrow of God's people. The great sorrow of God's people. Psalm 42 verse 3 used a similar image. My tears have been my food day and night. 
in great measure بالعربي وسقيتهم الدموع بالكيل the measure here can be the certain measure used by the Chaldeans when they took the people in captivity or just signifies abundantly so the tears are so great that they are made to drink their tears by the bulls St. Augustine says what is in great measure what does this mean St. Augustine says hear the apostle God is not faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to endure so the measure is according to your power the measure is that you be instructed not to be crushed yes it is great measure but God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to endure but he allows this measure to be instructed not to crush you the third expression I told you three God's wrath expressed in three ways delaying answer or feeding them the bread of tears the third in verse 6 you have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves so the third Israel is a source of contention to the neighboring nations and a mockery to the enemies the neighbors are fighting who will actually take Israel in captivity and Israel became a mockery to their enemies the mocking and sneering of Israel's enemies were painful for Asaph and the people of God in their low condition so Asaph is saying how long will these things continue their enemies laughed among themselves to see the fears Israel was in and the disappointments Israel met with when God is displeased with his people we must expect to see them in tears and their enemies in triumph verse 7 is the refrain that I told you repeated in verses 3 7 19 restore us O God of hosts cause your face to shine and we shall be saved in verse 3 he said restore us O God but here he added restore us O God of hosts so verse 7 the refrain occurs for the second time but with a slight variation he added God of hosts this indicates greater earnestness a deeper sense of the need for the intervention of God indicated by the reference of his attribute as the leader of hosts you are God of hosts you are able to save us so restore us O God of hosts cause your face to shine upon us and we shall be saved from verse 8 actually speaking about Israel as a vine he said you have brought a vine out of Egypt this vine is Israel you brought it out of Egypt you have cast out the nations and planted in the promised land you prepared room for it by 
casting all these nations from the promised land and caused it to take deep root they were established in the promised land and it filled the land Israel started to grow the hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars were with its bows cedars of Lebanon are very very tall so the branches of this vine actually were taller than the cedars of Lebanon and covered the cedar, the mighty cedars with its bow. It's about the fruitfulness. She sent out her bows to the sea, Mediterranean Sea, and her branches to the river Euphrates. And this was the time of David and Solomon, from Mediterranean to Euphrates. So, in this passage from 18 to 16, the psalmist contrasts God's former care for his people with their present trouble. You cared about us, but now you forsake us. And the figure of a vine, vine that once God carefully tended and is spreading far and wide in abundant growth, but now this vine is exposed to the ravages of wild beasts. Many passages of the Old Testament speak of Israel as vine. And the New Testament also applies the figure to Israel in the parable of the wicked vine dresser. And then more broadly to the people of God, the Christian in general. Why the vine? This beautiful. Why God symbolizes his people like a vine? God choose the vine because among other trees it is seen as little and soft. Even its wood, the wood of the vine is not useful for construction or for making musical instrument or for making tent names or for use as fuel because fire totally consumed the wood of the vine in moment. So it's weak little and soft. The only privilege of the vine is productivity, fruitfulness. If it doesn't bear fruit, then it is completely useless. That's exactly the people of God. We are required to bear fruits of the Holy Spirit. And if we are fruitless, we are completely useless. That's why God likened us to the vine. So the Israelites were in Egypt and they stayed for hundred years there. And where they were grievously oppressed and trampled upon by the Egyptians. But in the due time, the Lord brought them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from Egypt. And we can say the history of Israel as a nation started with the Exodus. This vine was transplanted from Egypt and brought into the promised land. The nation was transplanted from Egypt into a soil better fitted for it by the loving hand of God in order that it might have sufficient room to grow up and develop itself freely in the promised land. And as a vine dresser prepares the ground for the vine by clearing away the stones and thrones and all that would hinder its free growth, 
God prepared the promised land for Israel by removing all the old inhabitants. Then in, in Canaan, God planted Israel, made room by casting out the Canaanites nations. And the vine of Israel was blessed in the promised land. Under God's care and blessing, they took deep root and filled the land in a way that the variety of Canaanite tribe had not. The vine carefully cultivated in a suitable soil the promised land in order to spread to any extent. This vine actually grew so large, it filled the land and covered the mountains and the mighty cedars with its shade. Its branches extended themselves over all the hills and the mountains of Canaan, which means that the people multiplied so much and the people became so numerous. They filled not only the fruitful valleys, but also the barren mountains. They start to live in the mountains. St. Augustine says the branch is only useful for one or two things. Either to produce grapes, or if it does not produce grapes, it will be burned with fire. If it wishes to escape getting consumed by the fire, it is committed to keep its place and abide in the vine. But if it's cut from the vine, it will be consumed by fire. So the psalmist is describing Israel as prosperous nation that God established to be. God so blessed Israel, particularly in the days of David and Solomon, that all the neighboring nations were subdued to them. At its height, under King David and King Solomon, Israel domination is stretched from the Mediterranean, from the sea, to Euphrates, the river, from the sea, as Asaph said. And this was according to the promises which God had made to the forefathers. That's what literally happened to the people of Israel. Literally, the Lord set his people in Egypt as the first plant to be referred to him. Joseph, that's why he called him in verse 1, who led Joseph. Then he moved that plant from there by the hand of Moses. He cast out several nations from before its face to replant them in the promised land where its people increased in numbers and filled. But what happened after this? Having been diverted from God, he broke down her hedges and into it many strangers entered to humiliate as we read from verse 12. Then Asaph is asking God, why have you broken down her hedges? Because of their iniquities. So that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit. The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. So, Israel became defiled through the entrance of heathen worship into the temple. People start to worship pagan gods. And in place of God's care, the beasts of the wilderness inside it devoured its children. Maybe somebody will ask why you are speaking about Israel. 
actually this is about all of us, the believers, when we divert away from God, the vine of the church or my life, my soul, will be attacked by the demons. Why have you broken down her hedges? The hedges signifies God's removal of his presence, power, and protection from Israel, which were the hedge he set around them for protection, by which they were secured, fortified, protected from their enemies. Without God's protection, when he removed the hedges, the land of Israel was ready to be plundered and devoured by her enemies. So the image is a picture of nations stripping Israel of its wealth and power. And Israel's land is laid waste by remorseless enemies. The old Israel lost her hedges when they no longer enjoyed the divine presence, the divine promises, and the spiritual understanding. And the demons could corrupt her fruits. We should know that God himself is our stronghold who protects and hedges us. Do you remember when Satan complained against Job in Job chapter 1? He said to God, Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand, and his positions have increased in the land. Father Onesimus of Jerusalem said, Who is, in verse 13, the boar out of the woods uproots it? Who is the boar out of the woods uproots it? And who is the wild beast of the field devours it? So Father Onesimus, he said, These are Nabuchadnezzar in the Babylonian captivity or Antiochus Epiphanius in the captivity and destruction during the Maccabees time. And in particular, the devil who had authority over the enemies of God. St. Augustine said, the boar out of the woods referred to the Gentiles, the heathen nations around them, because they were counted by the Jews as unclean, and the swine is considered unclean. And also they came out of the wood, not out of the vine. Vine is Israel, the people of God. But the unclean, they came like out of wood. But in spiritual meaning, it is what will happen to any soul of a believer. If the soul does not abide in what is given to it until the end, if we don't abide in God, the soul becomes lost and turns into a puppet for the devil. Then, from verse 14, that's actually the Aspasmus Watus that we chant in the Divine Liturgy. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. I'm sure you remember, O Lord God of hosts, is taken from Psalm 80. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It's burned with fire. 
it's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. They perish at the because God is displeased with them. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. So with an earnest plea, Asaph prayed on behalf of the nation, begging God to return to them, to look upon the greatness of their misery, the graces of their need, and to visit this vine that he himself has planted. He is reminding himself, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and visit this vine, the the vineyard which your right hand has planted. The look of God is actually an active divine work, just when God looks at us. So the Lord sometimes departs from his church and people and hides his face from us because he is displeased with us. So he returns mean he manifests himself again. He show his face again. He show his grace and favor again and grant his gracious presence. So if God Lord of hosts, actually, Lord of hosts above and Lord of hosts below, is with his people. Who can be against us? If God is with us, who can be against us? They have nothing to fear from any enemy. So it's a beautiful prayer. That's why we chanted in the Divine Liturgy that God would guard, sustain, defend what he had planted, the vine which he had brought out of Egypt. The branch that you made strong for yourself. Verse 15. The branch that you made strong for yourself. Meaning the same thing, the same people whom he confirmed in the land of Canaan and made strong for his service and glory. If the right hand of God referred to the Son of God, so this verse is about the incarnation and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He planted the church, the divine vine. So, which your right hand has planted means the vineyard, the church of the new covenant, which your right hand, which your only begotten son has planted by his crucifixion and sending the Holy Spirit, the branch that you made strong for yourself, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And as the Lord Jesus told his followers that he is the true vine and God the Father is the vine dressers and we are abiding in him as branches abiding in the vine. Also Jesus himself was brought out of Egypt and replanted in the promised land and he was preaching throughout the breadth of the promised land, Israel. Asaph is asking God not to destroy them for the sake of Christ, your right hand, not to destroy them, whom God appointed to work out the salvation of his people by his great strength and who was to come from this vine because Jesus is a descendant of Israel and he came from Israel. So as if he's saying the vineyard, Israel, which your right hand has planted and the branches that you made strong for yourself because from Israel Jesus will come and will save your people on the cross.
then it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. So the great desolation of this fine came from the rebuke of God himself, not from the power of the enemies. They perish not through the rage of the wild beast and the boar, but at the rebuke of God's countenance. Because of God's anger, it was burned with fire and cut down. So, the Lord Jesus Christ planted the church, and he burned the evil of the Gentiles, and consumed it by the fire of the Holy Spirit. While giving enlightenment to the repentant, returning to him, the divine fire consumes evil and iniquities. The Jews, the old divine, having persisted upon denying faith in the Savior Messiah, also is burned by the divine wrath. Nabuchadnezzar and those who followed him because of God's anger burned the divine and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And the Romans did the same because of the anger of the only begotten Son and the image of the person of the Father whom the Jews crucified. So, it is burned with fire. It can be applied to Israel who did not believe in the Messiah and applied to the Gentiles who did not believe in the Messiah and did not repent. And literally, the temple in Jerusalem was burned at 70 AD as Father Onesimus of Jerusalem said. It's cut down and they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Your countenance, your face is against the Son of God. So because he crucified the Son of God, that's why they were rebuked. That's what Father Onesimus of Jerusalem said. Nabuchadnezzar, he's addressing God. Nabuchadnezzar and those who followed him because of your anger, burned the vine, Israel, and destroyed its city, Jerusalem. And the Romans, by Titus the commander, did the same because of the anger of your only begotten son, your face, and the image of your person whom they crucified. Verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Who is the man of your right hand? Some understand it to be the people of Israel in general, beloved and supported and strengthened by the Lord. Others said it's the house of David that was now to go in and out before God. But we read in Azra chapter 7 verse 28, I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. So the king of Israel is called the man of God's right hand because he was their representative. Also the right hand is the place of honor. So the man of your right hand means the one who occupies such position of honor. So let your hand be upon a man of your right hand can be Israel in general or the king of Israel the descendant of David. 
But according to several scholars, the talk here is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the subject of the pleasure of the Father, the only chosen by the Father to be the Savior of the world, and he is also a descendant of David. So, if you read it, keeping in mind Jesus Christ, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, Jesus Christ. Upon the Son of Man, Jesus Christ is called Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Whom you made strong for the accomplishment of his purposes, promises, and covenant. For the bringing about the salvation of his own people. Yes, on the cross we saw him as weak, but by this weakness he demonstrated the greatest strength and power. Under the leadership of one whom God has chosen, the nation would be kept faithful, as he said in verse 18. Then we will not turn back from you. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Revive us and we will call upon your name. So, in the strength of this Son of Man, who made strong, this man of God's right hand, God people will be restored to faithfulness. That what happened, Christianity is spread all over the world. They would be revived and once again call upon the name of God. Some say the prayer is for national rather than spiritual life. For a recovery from the destruction which has almost come upon Israel as a nation. Then we will not turn back from you. If God will adhere to their kings, they will adhere to him. But again, this is not acceptable to the church. Because this prayer is not about national victory. But again, as I told you, many fathers apply this to the Messiah. He is the son of man, whom the father made strong for himself, for the glory of his name. So the psalmist prophetically see that a day is coming, the day of the incarnation of the Son of Man, when the failed divine of Israel will find restoration in the church of the new covenant. Yes, Israel, this vine failed, but now the restored vine is the vine of the church of the new covenant. He sees that there will be a day when God's face will again shine on the believers, on the nation. There will be a time when salvation will come to the people. Indeed, it is through the Son of God that the vine of Israel would be reconstituted in a spiritual sense and revived so that it would never turn from God again. Like the apostles, they were Israelites and they were revived. There will come a time when the fruit of the vine will fill the whole earth. As we read in Isaiah 27 verse 6, Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom, spiritual Israel, and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. So the appeal to God continually increasing in intensity. And the psalm is closed again by the refrain in its third and most perfect form, Restore us. He said in verse 19, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. 
cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. So Israel will be restored. The, the spiritual Israel. God will smile favorably on his people and they shall be saved. Jesus is actually the divine response to this cry. Restore us, O Lord God of us. Cause your face to shine. Who's the face of God? Jesus, the Son of God. As we read in Hebrews chapter 1, the image of him, of his person. And we shall be saved. So cause your face to shine was fulfilled in the incarnation of the Son of God. That's why this verse also we say it in the Kehkohos. So having made his third appeal by the covenant name, the psalmist seems to feel that he has done all that he can and conclude this song. This actually concludes Psalm 80. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.